0: So last week, I kind of did a little introduction of who I am, and by way of talking about who I am, I think a little bit about who you are, who each of us is, uh, in light of God and, and in light of um, our creation and our fall. And this week, I want to talk about kind of continuing this theme of, of sort of questions that we might have, and as we kind of come together as a, a church, that kind of leads to another question, What What is a church? Um, what, what is a church, and then what specifically is Gateway Downtown? So, uh, we're going to talk about that this morning. And uh, before we dig into it, again, uh, I typically preach expositionally. I tr- typically preach verse by verse. But in this series, I'm preaching a little bit more topically. And so I've got a lot of different passages we're going to look at this morning. But if there was one that was going to rise to the top, it comes from First Corinthians chapter 12. And so we'll stand uh, to, to read a part of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 together. We stand because it's God's word and we want to honor it as God's word. If you don't have a Bible, there's, there's a stack of them in the back by Christina there. And uh, they're free. You can take them home. Uh, and it's on page 623 if you have a Bible that looks like this. Um, Otherwise, turn, flip, swipe, or look up at the screen, and you will find it. And we're going to start reading in verse 12, and we'll go down through verse 27. Then we're going to go off of this, and we're going to come back to it. Um, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ... where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way you have drawn this body together, that you have drawn these worshipers to you. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to worship you, to learn about you, and to be guided by you this morning. May my words be faithful, and to the extent that they're true, may we all Um, open our ears and hearts to hear what you say through me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. All right. So like I said, I I want to kind of uh, continue to go through this series of questions. Last week was kind of who am I uh, and who are you? This week, what is the church? What is Gateway Downtown? Uh, Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about what... Leadership looks like, especially with the announcement today that we have elders who aren't elders and an elder is going on sabbatical and now you have a lead pastor. What does all that mean? We'll, we'll, we'll answer that one next week. Uh, but this week I want to focus on what is this thing that we call the church. And, and my big point that I want to make this morning is something that should be very familiar to you, but I'm going to argue that what we see in scripture is something very similar to what you guys hear probably every week that a church is a group of people who love God and are called to live in community. All right? The church is a group of people who love God and are called to live in community. So we're going to flesh that out a little bit by looking at Scripture and then look at what that means here in our context as we go. First, I want to talk about this word church. For those of you guys who've been uh, in the church for a while, you've been Christians for a while, you've grown up in the church for a while, um, what, what are we talking about as a church? And maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're completely outside of it. You don't know. Um, the word church is, is a, a, a gathering, it's a congregation, it's a coming together. Uh, that's all the word really meant originally. Nothing fancy about it, but, but it came to be used. It was like the primary term that was used for the gathering of Christian believers. And it's used kind of three different ways in Scripture that we recognize. Sometimes... It's popular to think that one of these ways is not used, but all three of these ways are used, and those three ways are, first of all, that it's used universally. Scripture talks universally about all Christians, all disciples of Jesus Christ, all followers of Jesus Christ, being part of the church, with a capital C. Sometimes we call that the universal church, sometimes we call that the Catholic church, with a lowercase c. Catholic is just a fancy term, it means universal. Um and so all Christians are part of this one church. And we can see that in places in Scripture. Again, I'm gonna be jumping around a lot today. If you can keep up and you are fast at those sword drills, then great. If not, there will be up on the screen for you. Um but in Acts uh chapter eight, verses one through three, I think you can see that is one example of where Scripture is using it in a universal sense, talking about a guy named Saul. He became later known by his Greek name, Paul. uh, And he was going around uh, persecuting the early Christians. And it says that in verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I think he's talking about the church as a whole there because we know that Paul was not just ravaging the church in one house. He was going house to house. He wasn't just persecuting the church in one city. He was going from city to city, dragging Christians and putting them in jail and sometimes overseeing their death. And then places like Acts 20, 28 at the end toward the end of the book of Acts. And again there's a lot of places like this, but just taking a couple uh, by way of example. The passage I want to come back to either today or next week. Paul is talking to a group of elders, a group of church leaders in the city of Ephesus. And he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So you're talking about the church, singular, as those people that make up, those people who were purchased by Christ's blood. All right. From from God's perspective, in a way, that, that is what the church is. The church is composed of those people who, who God has redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Right. we talked a little bit about that last week. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So the, church, so the church is talked about in a universal sense. And sometimes it's popular to think, well, that's the only church there is. There really only is the universal church. And, and you know, anything else is kind of extra biblical or that came from history or that came from modern times. And that's not exactly true. Um, there's a local sense of, of the word church, or a regional sense of the word church, that comes up in Scripture as well. We can see that in places like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and the book of Ephesians, where Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Thessalonica. All right? And so it's it's sort of talking about all the Christians living in a particular city, um, or perhaps a particular region. Now, it's, it's possible there uh, that he's referring to all the Christians in one city because maybe the church was small, small enough that they could all gather together. But there does, does seem to be a, a local sense of that. In um, place, Acts 14, um, where it says more multiple churches are referenced in verses 21 through 28. But there's also a sense in which churches are particular, in which there's individual congregations, even within a city. And we don't see it much in Scripture, but we see it enough to know that it's real. In uh, Philemon, one of Paul's personal letters, he wrote a letter to a guy named Philemon, and in that letter, um, he sends greetings to the church in your house, the church that meets in your house. And at the end of the book of Romans, Paul greets the church that meets in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. And so there were some individual congregations, even a big city like Rome, there was an individual church that met in a house. Alright, so scripture does talk about these particular congregations. And, and I want to make sure that that's clear again because in different movements and different sections of the, the church with a capital C, there are people that want to kind of overlook the fact that we're universal, that there's Christians everywhere, that we're a part of. There are groups within the the Christian faith that want to ignore the fact that regionally, locally, churches have some connection to each other. And, and there are groups that want to say that the local church, the individual congregations are are unbiblical. And I don't need to be a part of that because I'm a part of the big church with a capital C. And, and Scripture affirms all three. Scripture talks about all three in positive terms. And so we want to make sure that we understand that that's In all of those senses, we can use the word church. But in all of those settings, whether we talk about universally, or whether we talk about sort of regionally, locally, Cleveland, or whether we talk about a particular congregation, like, say, Gateway Downtown, it's fair to call each one of those church. Because each one of those, in its own unique way, is a gathering, a collection, of people who are following Jesus Christ, trying to love God and live in community. So, what, what do we mean by that when we say that um, a, a church is a group of people who love God and live in community? And I, I want to break that down. What, what do we mean by saying that a church is a people who love God? Well, when we say that a church is a people who love God, uh, what we mean is that. Love is sort of the love. is sort of our response to what God has done for us. In the book of First John, chapter four, I'm going mean, to read a couple of verses here. 1 John chapter 4 is on 661, if if you're following along in one of these Bibles here. Um, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love Abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. And then skipping down a couple of verses, we love because he first loved us. So when I look at something like love God, which we, we kind of plaster on all of our signs on our website and everything else, I want to know what does it mean to love? And then what does it mean to say we love God? When we say we love, we know that we love because God first loved us. Okay, well, what does that mean? John tells us, John says in verse three sixteen, he says, By this we know love. Okay, great. This is how we know what love is. Okay, we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so when we talk about love, it's really popular in our day and age to think love is sort of like the greatest possible value, right? Everyone is striving for love. Everyone is looking for love. Everyone thinks if we all just love one another, things would be better. And it sounds great, but do you know what love is? John says that we know what love is in that Christ laid down his life for us. That is sort of the ultimate picture of love in the scripture is this idea that God took on flesh, that he humbled himself. The God of the universe, the God who made us, the God who owns it all, the God who needs nothing from us, who's entirely self-sufficient, who's amazingly glorious, decided to make himself humble by taking the form of a servant. He took on human flesh. He took on the limitations of what it means to be human. He grew like you and I grow. He suffered like you and I suffer. He probably got sick. He probably had diarrhea and vomiting, just like you and I do. All the sort of uncomfortable, awkward things about being a human, he went through. Jesus went through puberty. You know, he suffered, right? He suffered like we suffered. The Bible says he was tempted in every way like we were tempted, and yet without sin. And he did that because we were sinners, like we talked about last week, because we had rebelled against God's good rule, and God was not happy to see us away from him, to see us pulled apart from him. And so what God did was he sent his son in the likeness of a human being to do what we couldn't do, to live the way we couldn't live, and then offer his perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross. The Bible says, no greater love has anyone than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And so the greatest act of love that can possibly be done, that can possibly be given, God did for us in the person of Jesus Christ. He died for us. And not only did he die, but he rose again from the dead because our sins and our guilt couldn't hold him in the grave. And so... Jesus was made alive, he rose, he ascended to the Father, he sits enthroned in glory, king of the universe. And all that to say that if we want to understand what it means to love, we have to look first to Jesus. We have to look first to Jesus. And what Jesus said is that true love is a sacrifice of my own rights, my own priorities, and my own prerogatives for the sake of others. And Jesus said, and get this, I am doing that to the max. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But Jesus said, I'm doing that to the max because I suffered all of my divine prerogatives and all of my divine priorities for my creation. And I offered my life innocent and unjustly, offering my life, speaking as Jesus, for sinful human beings. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. But what gets crazier is in Mark chapter 8. Jesus repeats it in a couple places, but I like the way Mark phrases it. Uh, In Mark chapter 8, Jesus talks about then, if this is his mission, this is how he lived his life, then what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, Jesus says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake. And the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the son of man also be ashamed. When he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. There's so much there. I could preach a sermon on it. I did a couple weeks ago at my last church. Um, but I, I want to stress here that what Jesus says of his followers, if you want to know what love is, if love is dying for another's priorities, then the greatest love that we can offer is to die to our own priorities for the sake of Christ. That's, that is the greatest act of love we give. So if you want to know what it means to love God, Ultimately, it means to take up your cross and follow. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, no one would have questioned Jesus what he meant by take up your cross. We don't see crosses around too often. Well, we do, but they're pretty and they're decorative and they're on the side of buildings, right? But if you saw a cross around 30 A.D., It was a little shoddier looking, and there was probably a body hanging on it, and there was probably a lot of blood. It was an ugly, it was a gruesome picture. If somebody took up their cross, that meant they were walking to their death. And so when Jesus says, follow me by taking up your cross, he's saying that if you want to be my disciple, you need to count yourself as already dead. Count yourself as dead to this world. Count yourself as dead to the priorities of this world. Count yourself dead to sin. Count yourself dead to to what you want, what what you would have for yourself, and and live instead for Christ's sake, for God's sake. And again, he's not doing anything that he didn't do himself. He's not asking anything of us that he didn't do for himself by sacrificing tenfold what he's asking us to to sacrifice. That's what love is. Love is a self sacrifice and it's greatest level love is self sacrifice and so that's what the scriptures talk about for us and in fact that love is so great paul says in romans but god demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners christ died for us so if you want to understand what love god is it means that we have to be willing to sacrifice of ourselves to sacrifice my dreams my future, my hopes, my fears, my pride, my privileges for the sake of the one who created all of those things for the sake of God. I and mean, who is God? Again, you know, it's it's popular today to, to say you're religious or you're spiritual. Um, without making any really hard commitment about what you mean by that. But when we say love God, we don't just mean some figurative deity in the sky. There's a very real God that we're talking about. And that God is, like we talked about last week, he is the God who, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth, he's the creator. He is the sustainer. He holds together all things through the power of his word and the power of his hand. The Bible is very clear that this universe exists because of God and it's held together because of God. The Bible says that He's the King of the universe. That He is the Lord. He's constantly referred to in these terms. And He is the God who died for us. And so when we say we love God, we're loving the creator, the king of the universe, who was willing to sacrifice of himself for our own sake. That's what we mean by loving God. But we say that churches, people who love God, who live in community, Now, these two things, really, they go together, because as far as the Bible is concerned, it's pretty much impossible to love God and not live in community. Like 1 John said, he said, this is how we know what love is, that Christ died for us, and so we should lay down our life for our brethren, You can't do that unless you've got brethren that you're in community with. You're, you're, and this is not speaking of our physical brothers and sisters, our biological brothers and sisters, but our brothers and sisters that we have by faith in Christ. The Bible says that God adopted us into his family. God doesn't have children, you know, through a biological process. Uh, he's spiritual, but in a way that he loves us so much that, in, that in Ephesians, Paul can talk about the fact that God adopted us the blood of Jesus Christ, and so we're sons and daughters of the King, as as Jeremy uh, led us in song this morning, and because of that, we can see each other as brothers and sisters in, in an eternal sense that's never going away. All right? we're, that it's kind of a crazy thought to think that um, that those of us who follow Jesus Christ have entered into an eternal relationship with each other. Like, I'm going to be with you for eternity. You're going to be with me for eternity. That's a really crazy thought, isn't it? And how often we, we take so superficially the relationships that we have in this world when they're going to last forever. We spend so much time, and I'm not saying don't do this, but we spend so much time focusing on our marriages, right? Like those of you who are married or you know people who are married, you know, everyone probably at least knows someone who is married. We've, we spend so much time making sure that our marriage is strong. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. But you're going to be married to the person for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, however, God, you know, allows long. God allows you to stay on this earth. All right? So that marriage relationship is kind of a short term proposition. Now, don't hear me saying don't spend time in your marriage. God designed that. It's a good thing. He wants you to spend time on your marriage. But at the same time, if we're willing to spend so much effort on something that is not permanent, that's not going to last, Jesus does say, by the way, that marriage is not a thing once we get on the other side of eternity. Shouldn't we be thinking in terms of long-term commitment with other Christians? If you're a Christian... If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've taken up your cross to follow Him, you don't get to choose who you associate with and who you don't. You don't. You can pretend like you do. You can pretend like, oh, this person's kind of annoying. I know he follows Jesus, but he really, he's just bad for me. you know. Or, you know, yeah, she's just weird. You know, I, I, I really, you know, she just makes me uncomfortable. She's awkward. I know she follows Jesus, but... This is a little strange. You don't get to make that call. You can make that call, sure, for a few years, but guess what? You get to spend eternity with them. Right? And, and so, wouldn't it make sense? If God thinks that you should spend eternity with each other, but we should maybe kind of get our heads around the idea that maybe God thinks it's good for us to spend a lot of time with them. God has designed us for. Community. And we see this consistently in the early church. The churches and the individual congregations had regular habitual practice of getting together. Especially early on in the book of Acts, they were getting together almost every day. And and certainly, you know, throughout uh, that time, they're getting together at least weekly. You know, they would get together on what they said was the Lord's Day on, on Sunday. And so being together, sharing life together was an important thing. In the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 is a telling statement. And actually, I'm going to back up to verse, uh, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I find that interesting that only a few years after Christ's death and resurrection, um, you know, in the, the proximity so close to the apostles' teaching, we've already got Christians who've gotten in the habit of not meeting together. And the author of Hebrews says, don't do that. Don't do that. And why not? Because we need each other. I I love the fact that, first of all, he connects that idea of meeting together with holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We need community. We need the relationships of other Christians to help us stand strong in the faith. We also need that community to encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We live in a, a world that the Bible tells us is passing away. It's fading away. The, the, the things of this earth are um, on a path of disintegration. That God is going to do away with them. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And so that everything we see and everything we have is very temporary And it can be a difficult time. If you try to live this out, if you try and live out this dying to the world and living for Jesus Christ, it's hard. You're going to get burnt. You're going to get broken along the way. You need encouragement. If you don't need encouragement, you're doing something wrong. I pretty much guarantee that. And I love this. To stir up one another to love and good works which kind of flows into serve the city, but I'm going to save that for uh, another time. But that we need one another to stir each other up in love, in self-sacrifice, um, and, and good works. My experience has been that when I'm in close relationship to other Christians, when I'm rubbing shoulders with them, when I'm out there, not, even, not by way of competition, not, out, not even by way of of showing each other up. Not anything like that. Not anything of of trying to be, you know, presenting myself as holy when I'm not, you know, not trying to be a phony. Just when I'm with other believers, I find myself living out Christ better. That's been my experience. That's been what I see among other Christians too. Is that, when I am with other Christians, there's kind of a natural correction that's going on. What does what the, the scripture says? Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. One of the, the great things about marriage, for those of you who are married or thinking about getting married, um, is I found marriage to be one of the most, I think it's God's gift for sanctification. It's God's gift to make us holy. Because when you are in close relationship with somebody else, your faults kind of come to the surface. When you're living by yourself all the time, it's really easy to overlook your own faults and excuse your own faults because it's just your way of living and there's no consequence of it. But when you come face-to-face with another human being and they're there when you go to sleep and they're there when you wake up, the consequences kind of last, and you kind of start realizing, I'm a jerk, you know? it kind of forces you on your knees to kind of repent. You realize a little bit how bad a person you are. Uh, then you go and you have kids, and it's like multiplying the sanctification. Because then you realize, oh yeah, I am just like my dad, I am just like my mother, and I got to repent of that too. Um, but you don't have to be married to have that, and Scripture... Um, doesn't necessarily call for that. That's part of the reason why he calls us into community. It sharpens us. It perfects our love. As we, you, you cannot be in community with other Christians in a very real way, and, and not like see your own faults. Because the way that the Holy Spirit is moving in one person's life and the way the Holy Spirit is moving in your life might be different. You know, maybe you, you've gotten things together in one area of your life, but you're a mess in another area. You come into face-to-face contact with somebody who's got it together in that area, and you're like, whoa, I'm, I'm not there yet. You know, and, and so it kind of stands to reason that the, that the more people, the more knives you've got to sharpen against, the sharper you're going to get, right? I mean, that, that just kind of seems reasonable. I don't think that actually works with knives, but just go with it. Um... That's how God has designed us. And Paul paints this analogy in 1 Corinthians 12, it's an analogy he uses in a lot of different places in Scripture. And this is the passage that we read. But where he uses this body analogy. He talks about the body of Christ, the church of God, as, as sort of a, a physical body. And it's a powerful metaphor if you don't gloss over it. I think for many people who are Christians who've read the Bible a few times, we kind of gloss over it. But when you really stop and you, and you soak in what Paul's trying to say, it's pretty convicting. It's pretty challenging. And for those of you who haven't seen it, maybe it will give you a picture of what we're trying to do here at Gateway. As was we read in the passage, one of the ideas that, that Paul brings out is that in a body, there are different members. Members being the old word for a body part. right? And there are different parts of the body, and we need them. They work together. all right. The fact that I can walk to one side of the stage and gesture with my hands at the same time makes me ever so slightly more effective as a speaker than if I could only stand still and face the wall, right? So having different parts of my body makes me more whole, makes me more effective as a human being. If I was missing one of those parts, and we all know if we've ever been injured or had a lawnmower accident or anything like that, you know, we know that if we're missing something, something's not working properly, it limits us severely. We were on our, our elder retreat and, and Philip was injured, and so he couldn't go out and, and exercise with Brian or I. Brian went and ran. I, ran. I went and rode my bike. But Phil stayed home and did neither one because his, I don't know, what is it, your side, your abdomen? Abdomen, yeah. Um, therapy for that, um, it's untraditional, but you sock Philip in the gut after service, he would appreciate it. Unconditional, um, unconditional. Un- un- traditional therapy, but Philip was not, I mean, this guy, you know, if you know Philip at all, you know that he's like super athletic, and he's always doing stuff, and he couldn't do stuff, and you can see he was kind of like a little depressed about it, um, because he wasn't whole. We, we play this game, uh, would you rather, right? Like, would you rather be blind, or would you rather be deaf? You know, we, we play games like that. Would you rather go through life with one arm, or would you rather go through life with one leg? Right? But we play these games, like, to, to whatever degree that we can, like, sum up and say, ah, oh, I'd rather be blind, I guess, than deaf. But oh, it kind of stink. But the whole point of it is they both kind of stink, right? But the whole point of it is that we are stronger when we have all the parts together. And in the same way, God so designed the church, and He designed Gateway Downtown in such a way that when each Part of it is here, it works better than if somebody checks out or is missing. God, maybe he made you a toe. Maybe he made you a hand. Maybe he made you an ear. Maybe he made you an eye. I don't know what your role is in the body of Christ. But I do know that if you're not here or if you think that "Eh, I'm just going to take a break for a while. just going to turn off the hearing sensors for a while. That's not just you. That affects everyone around you. We are interconnected. If you shut off your ability to serve, then suddenly we become a, a weak serving church. If you cut off your ability to teach, then suddenly we become a weak teaching church. If you cut off your ability to move, then we become an immobile and stagnant church. We need each part that God has brought together here to be alive and be a part of what we're doing. And that's true universally, and it's true individually as a congregation. Um, Paul talks in verse 27 He's talking to the Corinthians, 1227. Why is my Bible in Hebrew still? Um, You guys all see it because it's up on the screen, I'm sure. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Which is really interesting because he's talking to the Corinthians. Again, he's saying you, Corinthians, are the body of Christ. And so, yeah, there is a sense in which he's talking universally, church with a capital C. But there's also a sense in which each one of these little individual congregations is a body of Christ. And the head of that body is Christ himself. So the, the controlling influence, the master, the Lord, the one who directs us, gives us purpose, the central processing of the body is Jesus Christ. All right? And so we look to him for our guidance, for our direction, and how we're supposed to move, and we come together in him. By the way, this idea that uh, we are all members of the body, this is where we get the idea of church membership. Which I know in some, some sections of the church is not popular these days, in some sections of the church is very popular these days, but the whole idea of membership comes from the idea of being parts or members of one body. Um, it, is a, it is a biblical concept and we can, we can uh, rationalize uh, the ways we've done it in modern times versus the ways they may have done it in, in, uh, in the first century. But there is a sense in which we know who belongs to the body and we know who does not belong to the body so that we know what's indispensable, what we have to protect and what we have to care for. Does that make sense? There there is a sense of that in Scripture. And I don't want to go down that rabbit trail too far uh, today. But this whole idea of a body imagery stresses this commitment to each other. Each one of us has a different function. Even to the point of the ones that we consider to be weaker or less presentable, and you can kind of guess what Paul is talking about, right? We 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 give special modesty to. There's certain parts we cover up, you know, and, and so in a way, the things that are less honorable we give more honor to. That's what that's what Paul says, you know. And, and so think about that from a human perspective. Um, those people that our society has deemed as less respectable, less worthy, less desirable. God has a very special place for those people in the church. And by, by bringing them into the same body as everybody else, God is showing them tremendous honor, an honor the world will never afford them. And for those of us who maybe come in and, and, and were part of that class that the world, would say, oh yeah, they got all together. They're real successful. We, we want to pay them respect. We want to treat them well because... Um, they seem like the kind of people we want to do business with, but those are the kind of people that God calls into the exact same body as the other people, and says, "I'm going to make you a big toe. You know, you're really, really important, but you kind of stink. You know, uh, or, or, or whatever the case might be. He has a way of humbling us in, in the body of Christ." You know, humbling us who are have everything together and are proud because there's 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 certain way that we cannot boast in the face of the cross of Jesus Christ when we know that He died for us and I don't deserve any of it. You can't boast. You can't boast before that. You know? And yet and yet when we're when we realize how low we are, we can boast. We can boast that despite that I'm nothing, and even though the world says I'm nothing, God says I'm loved. And we can brag about that. We can boast about what Christ has called us to be. I love what what Paul says. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. I think that's a little snapshot of what it means to live in community. I think it's also a great test of what it means to live in a community, isn't it? Here's how you know that you've got community with somebody. If someone you're in community with is honored, you rejoice for what's going on in their life. And if you don't, you probably don't have a lot of community with them. When somebody you're in community with is suffering, when they're hurting, when they're broken... If you're broken, too, probably means you've got some level of community with them. If you're not, you know, check your heart, because it probably means you don't have community with that person, or at least not enough. And so as we look at at, a gateway downtown, and we say we want to be a church that loves God and lives in community, that's, I think, what we we want. It's a very biblical idea that Christians are the people who love God, and this may be a little scandalous, but they're the only people that can love God. Because they're the only people who know what love is. That Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, laid down his life for those who were his enemies. Because until you know what love is, and until you know the God who gave that immense love, you had a complete inability to love anyone or anything. The author of Hebrew says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so when we talk about loving God, that's what we mean. When we talk about living in community, we mean that we are sharing so deeply in the lives of one another that we can't be separated from one another without it being detrimental to our own well being. And that's risky. That's us saying that I'm going to be vulnerable to the other people in this room. I'm going to be vulnerable to them so they can break me, they can hurt me. And they might. But there are brothers and sisters, and there are brothers and sisters forever. Uh, Philip gave us, uh, second time I mentioned Philip, oh, I'm picking on you this morning, but, but we were talking about what do we want, um, members of this body to be like? What does that mean to be a member of this body? And Philip used, and, and maybe it's something he's used before, so I don't know, but he used this just, uh, I, I loved this phrase that it, that it's to know and to be known. To know and to be known. That, that we want to see that the people who are members of this body, they know each other and they are known by each other. And, and by that, we don't mean, oh yeah, that's Jim, that's Jane, that's Jack, that's John. Because everyone has a J name. <laughs> and, um, and, and they all know that I'm Chris. That's not what we mean. What we mean is, is that we're open, that we're laid bare before each other. <clears throat> That, that you know me, and I know you on a, on a more intimate level. I know your weaknesses. I, I know where you're broken. You know where I'm broken. You know my strengths. You know my weaknesses. You know exactly how to push my buttons. You know exactly how to hurt me. Hopefully you wouldn't. But see, that's a risk I take when we're when we're known by each other. As we discussed this, the three of us, we we realized that, you know, a great um, kind of metric that we want to see from people is like, do you know how to pray for each other? Do we know how to pray for each other? Like really deeply pray for the things that are most affecting your soul. There's nothing wrong with praying for aunt marcy's uh, kidney stone surgery. We can pray for that. We have no problem praying for that, but we also want to pray that you know Jim is really struggling with pride. You know Mary is really struggling with lust but Jonathan is is. Um, it has really been transformed by the Spirit over the last few weeks, and and feels like he's um, grown immensely closer to Christ in ways he never knew before. Oh, praise God for that! When we're when we're exposed before each other, when we lay bare before each other, we can pray on a much more meaningful level for each other. Do you know what those things are for the people around you? Do they know what those things are for you? It's a great test to know how deep your community is with those people. And I honestly believe that as we look at at Scripture, that is the heartbeat of what we are are on a mission together. We are on a a war path together. We are fighting a, a difficult, struggling battle together. And, and there's, there's no room for us to try to go this alone. And so we're banded together. Here's the thing in Gateway downtown. If the scriptures say nothing else in First Corinthians and, and the other places where Paul makes a similar analogy, they say this, Christ has drawn you into community with each other, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. The real question is, Are you going to be obedient to that? And are you going to live it out? Are you going to fight against what God is trying to do in your life? Or are you going to run with what God is doing in your life? If you are a follower of Christ, he has called you together. And if you're part of gateway, some of you are just visitors, but some of you are, are, see yourself as part of Gateway, he has brought you here. No accident. He's brought us together. And we are a community. Are we going to live that out? Or are we going to fight against that? So let us continue to to meet together and encourage each other and spur each other on to love and good works in Christ Jesus. And we'll be talking more and more about what that looks like in our particular context. But for now, let's close in prayer. Father, we are, um, we're in awe of who you are. We, we're in awe that you call us messes that we are, um, sinners that we are, uh, conflicted and confused people that we are. Um, together, you call us by your grace into your family. And you've made us family members of one another. God, maybe look to your son, Jesus, to learn how to love each other. Not like an earthly family loves with all of its faults and failures, but teach us to love like you love with perfect grace and a perfect mercy, a pure heart and a humble spirit. As we draw near your Son, draw us close to each other. As we draw close to each other, draw us near your Son, God. And I pray for those who are not a part of your family yet. I pray for those who are who are listening, who are exploring, who are investigating, who you are, God, that you would show them that your great love that pulls us together is available to them as well. If they are willing, to take up the cross and follow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.